Matthew chapter 27. I want to read our text for us this morning as we begin Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of the soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. A lot of times when we come to this portion of Matthew, we've just finished up the death of Christ, the crucifixion. A lot of people spend a lot of time on that, and then they jump over to the uh, resurrection, which is exciting. We'll be there next week and so forth. But a lot of people miss this section of Scripture. And there's a lot of significance here in these couple verses concerning the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as significant as it was his death on the cross and just as significant as his rising from the dead was this portion of Scripture that speaks of the burial of Christ. It's a marvelous uh, section of Scripture that shows God's intervention into every detail, you might say, of the life, the death, and even the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one thing I want to pull out for you today as we go through this text a little bit is the sovereignty and providence of God. You see it right through this whole thing. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we serve a God who is sovereign. That is, he is all-powerful over everything. And we see that played out here. And we also see his providence. He takes our lives in certain ways and, and, and without even miraculous things. He arranges them according to his plan. And we're going to see how everything just lines up perfectly. And he uses all that are involved here. All the different characters. All the different folks But there's two key prophecies that are are literally fulfilled right before our eyes. If you look over at uh, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, this whole chapter speaks of of the the sacrifice of Christ. But in, in verse 9, it says this, And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. It's interesting that that verse says that even though he was crucified, 
He was a man of sorrows. He bore our griefs, verse 4. He was wounded for our transgressions, verse 5. He was taken from prison into judgment, verse 8, it says that. And then verse 9, it says that his grave was assigned to be with wicked men. Yet, or but, or instead of that, a rich, he was with a rich man in his death. That's a very unusual prophecy that would be hard to understand apart from the scenario of Christ's birth or his burial. Um, He was supposed to have been buried with criminals. That was the plan. But instead, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. The other prophecy that we see fulfilled here is over in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 where Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus predicted that he would be in the grave three days. There would be three days between his death and his resurrection. That he would be in the earth for three days. And those two Prophecies clearly speak of the burial of Christ. And we're going to see here some of these characters that God used in his providence to fulfill not only these prophecies, but many others. And we see here the first character in our outline, Joseph of Arimathea. And I want you to look at the providence of God's timing. The incredible providence of God's timing here back in Matthew chapter 27. Look at verse 57. It says, when it was evening, or when evening has come. That word evening refers to the early evening of the Jewish day from 3 to 6 p.m. The Sabbath would begin at 6 p.m. That's when the Sabbath always began. And it would end at 6 p.m. the next day. So the setting here, this providential timing of God... Verse 57 is right around 3 p.m. By that time, Jesus was dead. We looked at that last week. And that alone is an incredible uh, situation. Most people who died of crucifixion, some went on a lot longer than Jesus, but some even for days they hung there, still alive. And that was the whole purpose of it. So that there would be a testimony of anybody who would come across the Roman government. They would hang them, they would crucify them right up down there next to the road where everybody traveled. And you could walk by and see these people moaning and groaning as they hung on their crosses. A reminder, don't come against the Roman government. But here we understand that Christ didn't have his life taken from him. He voluntarily gave it up. In John 10 Verses 17 to 18, it tells us that he freely gave up his life. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who ordered his execution, was, he was really astounded in Mark 15, 44. It says that Christ died so soon. He couldn't believe it. But it was imperative that Christ be dead early enough in the day so that he could be in the grave sometime on Friday before the next day began. That day had to be included as one of the three days because he was going to rise on Sunday. He would be in the earth, the others being Saturday and Sunday, all three days. 
Now, is this speaking of three 24-hour periods? No, it's not. It would be like if you went to San Francisco, if you came up to me after the service and said, hey, we went to San Francisco yesterday. I wouldn't think that you were in San Francisco for the whole 24-hour period of time. I would think, no, you went there for a portion of time, and then you came home. But you counted it as part of your day. And that's the same way it is with the burial of Christ. That's why he had to be in the grave no later than literally 6 p.m. on Friday, because that begins the next day. And he was in the grave a portion of Friday, a portion of Saturday, and a portion of Sunday morning. So each, each day was three days. So he thus fulfilled that, that prophecy but I, I want us to see here this, the timing of, the, of, of, of God, but we see the preparation. Because it says there in verse 57, when it was evening, okay, when it was evening, Christ yielded up his life. He said, it is finished in John 19.30. In Luke 23.46, it's recorded, the Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. See, he who controlled life, beloved, also controlled death. God is sovereign over both. He who could raise himself up in three days also willed his own death and himself into the Father's presence at the appropriate time. John 19.31 says this, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation... And he's speaking here of the Jewish leaders who were hostile to Christ, not the Jewish people, in John 19.31. But he uses that word preparation. It was the preparation. Well, what is that? It refers to the day before the Sabbath. Because you had to get everything done before the Sabbath or Friday. That's the day of preparation. Because Saturday was the Shabbat. Saturday was the Sabbath. And you couldn't do anything on Saturday. So you had to get all your little goodies ready for your Passover meal, the whole, the whole nine yards. And you had to do it on the day of preparation. And it was called that all the way back from Exodus chapter 16, verses 23 and 30, when God instructed the Jewish people to keep the Sabbath holy. I hope you understand today that the Sabbath is not on Sunday. <laughs> the, sa- the Sabbath is on Saturday. And we're no longer under the law that requires us to keep the Sabbath, by the way. We see that clearly taught in the New Testament. The reason we gather on Sunday is not because it's a Sabbath, but it's, it's the day that Christ rose from the dead. But because they had this day of preparation, they had all these rules and regulations about the Sabbath. You couldn't do any work at all. You had to have a day of preparation. And when God provided manna, the people had to collect, remember, all the food in anticipation of Saturday because they weren't allowed to do it on Saturday. Thus, Friday became known as the day of preparation. Well, John 19.31 continues and it says, The body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath was a high day. This wasn't just an ordinary Sabbath. This was the Passover meal, the Passover feast. One of the most holiest times in their faith. And all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, it says, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, 
and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall sure bury him that day. For he who is hanged is accursed by God, that the land not be defiled. Now, they didn't always follow this. Like I said, sometimes they left people up there for days. The Romans really didn't care about this. It was the Jews that made a big deal about this. But at the same time, being that this was a big holiday, and they had all these thousands and thousands, millions of people in Jerusalem, and they were all there to celebrate the most holy day in their faith, probably the Romans didn't want to tick all these people off. So they said, okay, you know what? We'll, we'll take this, we'll deal with this time frame, and we'll deal with the, uh, taking the, the body down. But the bodies could only be removed after they were dead. You couldn't take them down while they were still living. And like I said, they were, they were surprised that Christ was already dead. But see, that's why the Jewish leaders went to Pilate in John 19, 31, and said, hey, why don't we break their legs? Have their legs broken. So that kind of escalates everything. It speeds everything up. Because when you're hanging on a cross, really the only chain length of life that you have is when you can push your, your, your body up and take a, a breath of air and then go back down on that nail that's through your feet and the nails that are on your hands. And generally, people would suffocate to death because after a while, they couldn't do that any longer. They were just too weak. Well, it says that they besought Pilate and John to break their legs. That word means to shiver into pieces. And what the Romans would do, and they, they enjoyed this process. They enjoyed the process of crucifying somebody. And this was just part of the process at times. They would take a big wooden mallet and they'd walk over to those who were crucified and they'd walk up to the, the, the lower leg and they would just hammer it until their bones were, were just dust. You can imagine the pain that they were going through already being crucified, and then someone's smashing your leg bones with a giant wooden mallet. And it'd literally splinter those bones. And when that happened, the body would just fall limp because they couldn't hold themselves up anymore with broken legs, and they would suffocate within a few moments. What's interesting is that in Psalm 34, verse 20, it says that not one of his bones should be broken. So they came to these three, quote, criminals, two criminals in Christ. In their mind, they were all criminals. And they said, okay, let's start breaking the legs. What's interesting is when they came to Christ, he was already dead. He was already dead. And just to make sure, what they would do is they would take a, uh, kind of a big sword actually, and shove it up into the thorax of the individual, penetrating all those vital organs, just to, just to make sure that they were dead. And that spear would go right into the victim's heart. Now you might say, why would they do that if when they came to Christ, he was already dead? One proposal is that 
the pain of his shattered legs traumatized the victim. So then the spear thrust would be somewhat of a relief. That's why they would break their legs sometimes. Edersheim says this. They just basically wanted to increase the punishment. And eventually they would kill him with a spear to the heart. Um, but Christ's unbroken legs were prophesied in Psalm 34, 20, as well as his pierced side. In Zechariah 12, 10, even in, in our text, in Matthew uh, 27, it, it, it says there in, in verse... Uh, uh, where's that verse? Or not in Matthew, over in, in, in uh, is it in John? Where it says, again, another scripture says, they looked on him whom they have pierced. All right? And I think that that's, that's key to understanding that, that they actually literally would have had to run a pierce, a sword into his heart. And they did exactly what God intended for them to do. Even though they were acting of their own volition, God wasn't there making them be a robot and doing this, but they did it. That's the providence of God. That's God using people, individuals, to fulfill his purpose. So not one of his bones was broken, and yet he was pierced in the side. God's providence in timing. We also see the providence of God in this, this man of God named Joseph of Arimathea. A little bit about Joseph, a little bit about his identification. He was a rich man. It tells us that right in the text. He was a rich man from Arimathea. And he was more than just a, a rich man. I want you to understand that Mark 15.43 says that he was a prominent member of the council, the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling body that sentenced Jesus Christ to death for claiming to be the Son of God. That verse also says he anticipated the kingdom of God. That he had a heart for God's truth. Even though he was part of this organization, God touched his heart. Luke 23.50 tells us that he was a good and just man. Verse 51 also tells us there in Luke 23 that he did not consent to condemn Jesus to death. But most importantly, he was rich, which was a fulfillment of the verse we read back in Isaiah 53.9. It tells us that he was from Arimathea. The only thing we know about Arimathea that was that it was a city of, of Jews, Luke 23.51 says, and we, you know, assume that it was in relative close proximity to the city of Jerusalem, since his own grave was outside that of the city. Uh, probably didn't live very far from there. Verse 57 tells us that he was also a disciple of Christ. He was a disciple of Jesus. This Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the Sanhedrin, he was kind of like a secret disciple. That word disciple means to be a follower or learner of Christ. He was learning from Jesus Christ. 
He was believing what he said, what he heard, what he saw over the time here that he spent with Christ in his midst. In John 19.38, he gives us additional information about his relationship with Jesus. It says that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. I don't think we understand what it means to be in a country where you're persecuted for your faith. I've heard a lot of people get on Joseph of Arimathea. How could he be a secret disciple? Being a secret disciple, that's not a good thing. Well, you go to some countries of the world where you're persecuted for your faith, and you have secret disciples of Jesus Christ all over the place. They don't just march out and meet in public as Christians. They'd be executed. Their situation forces them into secrecy. They still love the Lord. They still serve the Lord. They still witness for the Lord on occasion and reach out, and they see God do incredible things in their midst. But they can't advertise it because of the government that's over them or the situation they find themselves in, whatever it is. We don't understand that in this country because we have the freedom to say and do pretty much whatever we want. But up until this time, Joseph had been one of those secret disciples because he was afraid the leaders and what they might do to him and possibly his family if they found out he was a disciple of Christ. I mean, to be a disciple of Christ and to be part of the Jewish religion would have literally meant you're an outcast. You would lose all business ties, all family ties, all friends. You wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue. All that stuff would go bye-bye, just like that. That's how strict they were concerning these things. We see here that Joseph had to act fast because Jesus had to be buried, like I said, before the Sabbath began that Friday night at 6 p.m. And when we look at how the, the Jewish leaders are, are organized and playing into this, they're right in their role as God has them. They were also in a hurry to get him down from the cross because it didn't look good to have somebody hanging up there on the festival day of Passover. Pilate could have left Jesus hang on up there. He could have just said, ah, I don't care. He's an example. We're going to let him hang there. And they couldn't have done anything about it, by the way. But I think he honored their request because he didn't want to offend them again. <laughs> Remember, he had problems with the people back in Rome. He had issues. He wasn't on the top, you know, performers list of the Roman government. He messed up too many times. So the last thing he needed was an insurrection on his hands. So when they came and they asked him, hey, can we take the, the body down? He's dead. Let's, can we do it? See, he'd been blackmailed before by them in the past. He didn't want that repeat of that. So here's Joseph of Arimathea. It says in verse 58, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That alone is putting him in harm's way. That alone, just that, that going to him and asking that, I mean, it could put him in, in definite harm's way. And that's where you see his commitment here. He's willing to put himself at risk now all of a sudden because he understands the situation. He didn't know what Pilate would do to him. 
He could have turned to him and said, are you one of his followers? Well, you're going right next to him. Get another cross ready. Let's, hang, let's, let's crucify this one too. He didn't know what would happen. But he took the chance because he was committed. Since he wasn't a member of Jesus' family, I mean, what, what would Joseph have had to say to him to convince him to give him the body? I mean, have you ever tried to go and ask, maybe you're visiting somebody in the, from the, the church in the hospital, and you pull the nurse aside and you say, hey, well, how's it going you know, with Mrs. Jones? Is she doing okay? What do they say? Are you part of the family? Who are you? I don't care who you are. I can't tell you that. We have confidentiality, right? We have, they have all kinds of rules and regulations. You can't just march into a hospital and start asking about people's health. They'll wash you right out the same way you came in. You have to have a credential. You have to be a doctor. You have to have some kind of a credential. You have to have a reason of being there. You have to be attached to the family. Here's Joseph of Arimathea. He wasn't attached to Jesus at all. He was a secret disciple. You wonder what he did. wonder what he said to him that made him give him the body. I mean, there was no good reason for Joseph to have expected to receive the body of Christ. And I'm sure he realized once word got out that he intended to bury Jesus Christ and that he was one of his disciples. He knew what was coming down the pike. He knew that he would lose his reputation in the religious community. He would lose his social standing. Couldn't do business with people anymore. See, that's the price of following Christ. We think sometimes being a Christian is so easy and so, you know... Happy, happy in Jesus, as we sang early. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it requires sacrifice. Sometimes it requires commitment. And we see this man, this dear man, being used in the providence of God to show that he was willing to make that commitment. That word ask there, he went to Pilate and asked. It literally means to beg. He didn't just march into Pilate and hey, can I have the body? Oh yeah, no problem. No, it says that he begged for the body. It says then Pilate commanded that Jesus' body be given over to Joseph. In Mark 15, verses 44 and 45, it tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was dead. Usually he didn't die that, that soon. So he had to check with the centurion who had been there to, to uh, secure the scene and everything and verify that he was dead. When we look at the actions of Joseph in verse 59, it says, first of all, that he carried the body. What's one thing... Jews don't want to be around, right? It's a dead body. That's just not a good thing. You would defile yourself if that were the case. Apparently, his tomb was close to the cross, so he wouldn't have to carry it too far. There's a place over there called the Garden Tomb, which we visited when we were there, and it's right around the, the corner almost from Golgotha. So God ensured that the, the, the tomb was close enough and that he'd be able to, to take this body 
and get it there before Friday night began. It says that he wrapped it in linen. He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. John 19, 39 and 40 tells us another man was with Joseph, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel. No doubt another member of the Sanhedrin. Both men were prominent in the nation. And in John 19, 39, it says Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. See, the Jews didn't embalm their dead. They anoint the body with a, with a heavy load of different spices and herbs to keep the smell of death from penetrating the area until the body was buried. Myrrh was kind of a, a liquid. Aloe was a, a, a kind of a powdery substance. And when they were mixed together, it kind of made this stuff you'd put on the body and you'd wrap it in the linen. The woman helped Joseph wrap each limb and the torso of body of Christ's body with a fine linen and then provided a special head covering or head napkin for his head. And it says then in verse 60 that he laid it in the tomb, in his own new tomb, the one that he had hewn out of the rock. Um, being a, a rich man, I doubt that he did it himself, obviously. Probably had somebody do it for him. But when you're over there, you can go to the, the, the tomb and you can actually walk in there and they have this big rock that's rolled in front of you know, whether it's the tomb of Christ or not, who knows. But it's, it would definitely be something similar to that. And it's, it's right there. You look up and you can actually even, even see off in the, 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 uh, the, the distance Golgotha. And the, the hill that where he's crucified resembles a scroll, uh, the skull. I showed that to you a couple weeks ago. So he rolled a stone in front of the tomb. And they would do this just to keep looters out or people that were, you know, just going to go in there and see if anybody, they left any valuables on the body. They had grave robbers. And over there now they have this big circular tomb and it's kind of in this rut and, or a cover, uh, stone and it's kind of in this rut and you could see where they could roll it easily uh, right in front of, of the entrance to the tomb, sealing it off. But the amazing thing here is that the burial was accomplished before the end of Friday. Verse, 50, verse 62 of chapter 27 of Matthew, it says, The next day... That is, after the day of preparation. See, Jesus was in the grave before the next day, Saturday, the Sabbath. So the prophecy would be fulfilled when he rose on Sunday, the third day. Now, all these events were orchestrated by our God, our sovereign God. In his providence, he, he made all these things align just right. He would be in there three days. He'd be in a, a borrowed tomb. He'd be in a, a rich man's tomb. You say, well, what made Joseph of Arimathea come out of his secrecy? Who knows? Maybe it was all the circumstances surrounding the death of Christ. Remember, there had just been an earthquake. There was darkness over the entire earth. The graves were opening. The veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. All those things happened simultaneously. One thing we can be sure of, God worked on his heart 
to bring about this fulfillment of prophecy. Well, the next set of characters we see here concerning the, the burial of Christ, it mentions in verse 61. It says, not only Joseph of Arimathea, but in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Two Marys. Mary Magdalene from Magdala, a village on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. The other Mary was the mother of James and Joseph. It says that up in verse 56, Matthew 27. John 19.25 calls her the wife of Clopas. She was one of the ladies who followed him from Galilee to attend to his physical needs. Provided food, sustenance, care. Other ladies had been present during the crucifixion and the burial, but apparently they left. There was nobody around. Only these women remained. And you say, well, what was their significance here? It just says they were sitting opposite the tomb. I mean, they were probably weeping. They were probably in deep sorrow and agony. If Joseph of Arimathea was used by God to confirm the deity of Christ through fulfilled prophecy, maybe these two women were used to affirm the same through firsthand testimony. In Matthew 28, verses 1 to 5, it tells us, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers, who were the Roman guards, shook and became his dead man. And the, an- the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not. And these two women, it says, fell to the ground, shake at, when they heard the angel. See, it's very clear that we don't worship someone we hope came out of the grave. We have eyewitnesses that saw the empty tomb. Evidence that the resurrection actually occurred. And it was these two Marys that provided that. And they were commanded, the angel said in verses 5 to 7 there of 28, that they were commanded to give testimony. The angel said to the two Marys, I know that you're seeking Christ. He was crucified, but he's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where your Lord lie. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. See, these two disciples, were, these two women were given the command to give testimony to the resurrection of Christ. And you look in verse 8, and what, what's it say they did? Did run to bring his disciples' word. So they did exactly what they were told to do. And then you look down in verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 28, and you see that and they, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. This is the risen Christ, beloved. Saying, all hail, and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then he said unto them, be not afraid, go and tell my brethren. See, God used two women, two simple women, who were hanging outside of the grave, who couldn't bear to be part to be away from Christ for very long. 
They left for a time, apparently on the Sabbath, but they came back the third day, perhaps hoping against hope that what he said would come to pass. And that's exactly what happened. And they saw the evidence. See, God honored their faith by allowing them to give testimony to what they saw. Do you ever think of your testimony that way? That it's, a, it's an honor. When you share your testimony with someone, it's an honor to share with others what Christ has done in your, your life. Sometimes we think, oh, no, we can't, you know, can't do that, you know, too fearful, too this, too that, whatever. It should be an honor to share our testimony with others. What has God done in your life lately? What is Christ continuing to do? They apparently didn't have the strongest faith. Maybe it was feeble. But it certainly was stronger than that of the disciples. Where were they? They were gone, right? They were nowhere to be found. Some people believe that the 12 disciples fabricated the account of the resurrection to carry on the program. But you know what? They're not the ones that saw the evidence. The women did. The women are the ones that went to the disciples. The disciples weren't out telling people that he rose from the dead. They were cowering in fear. They were reluctant to believe the woman. In Luke 24, it tells us. Thomas was reluctant up to the point that he saw the risen Lord for himself. So God gave us firsthand witnesses to spread the word of the resurrection and through eyewitness testimony and fulfilled prophecy in the burial of Christ. God was at work through all this vindicating Jesus Christ as his son, as deity. I mean, you have to stop and you think of all the attributes that God possesses, his holiness, all those things. His omniscience, his omnipresence, he's everywhere. I think one of the greatest and essential attributes that God possesses is his sovereignty. His supremacy, that he is God and we are not. Sometimes we forget that. We forget that God rules over all things. He controls all things. When you stop and you ponder that, I mean... You get a headache. It's, it's hard to comprehend. Yet it's the essential truth of what we believe. The Bible teaches unequivocally that God is the supreme ruler of the universe. We're going to talk how that affects us at the end of the message. But we see that through every little detail. The third group here of the chief priests and the Pharisees in verse 62 and 66 it says the next day, that is the day after the preparation, which would be the what? The Sabbath, right? The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. All the planning for the meal, everything was done in advance because they didn't want to do anything on the Sabbath. And this was the Passover Sabbath. It was the holiest day in all the Jewish calendar. But look at who gets together here. You have the chief priests... And the Pharisees. And it says that they came together onto Pilate. They represent the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling body in Israel. The thing you have to understand is the chief priests were the Sadducees. And the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were enemies theologically. They were at, at opposite ends. 
They had little to do with one another. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. So they had this constant theological battle going back and forth. And we've looked at that in the past. And if you get them confused, Sadducees, Pharisees, just remember the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Exactly. The one thing that they could agree on was the simple fact that they needed to eliminate Jesus Christ. And they agreed upon that. Yet it wasn't enough for Christ just to be dead. They were afraid that somehow one other thing would come up. They were afraid that possibly some kind of a ruse was being done. It says there, they came together onto Pilate. You know what's interesting is when you study this out, when it says they came together onto Pilate, that literally means that they went into the palace. They went into the, 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 the preparatorium there of, of Pilate. Remember before when, when Christ was taken in arrest and they took Pilate, or they took Christ in there? Remember the Jewish leaders wouldn't go? They wouldn't go in because they didn't want to defile themselves. It's interesting how they changed. Because now there's nobody around. There's nobody there. They're just there before Pilate by themselves. So they just march right in. But before, oh, we can't go in there. We'll defile ourselves. Wink, wink, as they look at all the people watching them. See, that's what legalism is, right? Legalism is doing something for, for not God's view, but for somebody else's view. And then when that, those people were gone, you do something else that's totally against what you stated there, but over here you're doing something totally opposite, and it doesn't even matter to you. Sometimes we come to church and we act a certain way, and we talk a certain way, and we do certain things. And then we live our life out in the week to week in our workplace. And it's like we're a different person. You might want to be careful of that. might be a little tendency to be legalistic on some matters. See, legalism is basically saying, you know, it's making up a rule based on an opinion. I don't think men should have hair that touches their collar. And I think all men should have hair off their collar. You can't find a verse that says that. You may find a verse that says, hey, it's not appropriate for a man to dress as a woman or take on the likeness of a woman, whatever. But you're not going to find it in that detail. And yet there's people out there that are so filled with legalism, they have barbershops in their lobbies at their churches. I kid you not. And they also have dress shops. Just in case a female would show up and have on a pair of slacks, they would have to go change. That's legalism. There's nothing in the Bible that says about that. That's exactly what legalism is. And that's exactly what these religious leaders were. They were a bunch of legalists. And so now that nobody's looking, well, they can go march right into Pilate's house and it's not a big deal. But before, they couldn't do that. But they wanted to make sure that there was no story after to follow up Christ. 
They were trying to really subvert the prophecy that was told by Christ himself, that he would rise again. That's what they say in verse 63. Sir, Pilate, we remember that the deceiver, look at what they call him, the deceiver. While he was yet alive, after three days, said, I will rise again. It indicates, that word deceiver indicates their desire to keep him far removed from them. We're not like him. He was a deceiver. A seducer of the people. They still, even though Christ was dead, they still held him in great contempt. And they had a concern. He gave them a prophecy after certain scribes and certain Pharisees said that he would rise, or Christ gave them a prophecy that he would rise again. Back in Matthew 12, 38, they asked him for a sign. Remember? They were saying, well, give us a sign. We'll believe in you if you give us a sign. Do a miracle or something. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it. But the sign of the prophet Jonah, for this Jonah was in the three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's back in Matthew 12. They totally understood what he meant. They understood what Jesus said. He would be buried and that he would rise again. His disciples didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Even on occasion when he would point that out to them. And he taught them that over and over and over again. You look in Mark chapter 8 verse 31. It says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That he would be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed. And after three days he's going to rise again. That's what he told his own disciples. Multiple times. And what's amazing, after that explicit explanation of what's going to happen, Peter rebukes the Lord. So the disciples didn't have a clue here. They, they really didn't get it. But the religious leaders did. The religious leaders knew exactly what Christ promised to do. And so they wanted to prevent any rumors of the resurrection from springing up. So in verse... 64, they say, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead. The last fraud will be worse than the first. See, that's the the prophecy they, they were trying to subvert. They were trying to eliminate any kind of story here. They weren't afraid that Christ would rise, beloved. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were afraid the disciples would come and fabricate a story and take his body and say, look, he did what he said. And then the whole thing would continue. That's what they were afraid of. They wanted to avoid a permanent deception. That's why they said the last error would be worse than the first. See, they considered... The first error to be when Jesus, remember on on that Monday when he rode into Jerusalem on a colt and he fulfilled the prophecy and the people laid out their garments and their branches and as he rode into the, the city on that Monday, they said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The religious leaders were looking at that and they were, they were just 
building in contempt and hatred toward Christ. He's stealing our show. And they saw that as a deception. And they said, man, what's worse than that is if somehow they deceive everybody into thinking that he's risen from the dead. Well, you look at what happens here with Pilate in verse 65. He says, you know what? You have a guard. Here, I'll give you a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. He didn't want to deal with it. He was done. He gave them a Roman guard. Pilate wanted only to just get this thing out of his hands. He didn't want to see it anymore. He didn't want to deal with it anymore. He was just complacent in the whole matter. just said, you know what? I'm done. They were constantly demanding things from him, and he just said, that's it. Here, go do whatever you want. I don't care. And verse 66 shows us the consequence of God's providence. It says, so they went, and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now, they didn't break out their crazy glue and, you know, <laughs> goop it on there and put the stone. That's not what that means when it says they sealed the stone. They used kind of a, a wax. And usually somewhere along the, 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 the uh, lining of the seal, there would be a string that ran through it. So if someone tampered with it, you would clearly see that it was tampered with. The tomb was very secure. A group of Roman soldiers were set to guard it. So when you stop and you think, boy, God worked this out perfectly. He really did. In his sovereignty, he had everybody do exactly what he wanted them to do without them even knowing it. The only way Christ could have come out of that grave was by resurrection. So when you stop and you look at the burial of Christ, I pray that you'll look at it in a different way. You'll see how God used Joseph of Arimathea to fulfill prophecy, how he used those two Marys to give that first-hand testimony of the empty tomb, which is evidence of the resurrection, how he used even the chief priests and the Pharisees to give forceful proof that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. I mean, they set the whole thing up perfectly. I mean, doesn't that show you God's providence? And how does that relate to us? How does that relate to you and me? What are we to walk away with here this morning? I'm going to read a very common verse for you. We all know it, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. See, I want you to understand as you walk out these doors this morning, all things are controlled by God to work together to fulfill His eternal purpose for His own beloved children. See, that's the doctrine of of God's sovereignty. That's the doctrine of God's providence. It's not just for some theologian. It's not just for some discussion in some seminary somewhere. You know, when you cannot explain the trouble you're experiencing in your own life, and you're looking at life going, what's going on? We need to understand the providential power of a sovereign God, and He controls everything in the universe. For your good and His glory. That should give us hope. Remember, He demonstrated His ability to do that in death, but He also demonstrated it in the burial of Jesus Christ. 
I want to tell you this morning, everything that happens in your life, everything, including trials, including some horrible things, somehow fits into the plan of God because he is in control. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't abandoned his throne. Our hope and our confidence is in God who providentially, and if need be at time, miraculously controls all things for his eternal purposes. I pray that you see how God is controlling all these things. And I pray that when you look at your own life, whatever happens, whatever you can't understand, whatever things you struggle with day to day, whatever doesn't make sense, whatever trials you may be going through, I pray that you'll understand that it all fits in God's plan somehow. He's in control. He hasn't abandoned you. Our hope and confidence is in a God who providentially controls all these things for his own intended desire and eternal purpose. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that we would acknowledge your sovereignty in our lives, that you, we would see your providentially, providential hand working in ways behind the scenes. Father, I know that there's some people in this room right now that are going through some things that they don't understand. Hurtful things, painful things that are beyond their comprehension, that are beyond our comprehension. It's so easy to shake our fist at God and say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? But when you understand the sovereignty of God, when you understand the providence of God, when you understand the holiness of God, all you can do is praise Him. Praise Him that He gives you the strength, the breath, to make it through another minute of whatever trial you may be facing. Praise Him that He gives you the ability to discern. Praise Him for the word that He gives you to comfort your heart. Praise Him for the Spirit that He gave you that dwells within you. That even at times when you don't know how to pray, when you're at a loss, it says that He intercedes for you with groanings that can't even be uttered. Praise Him for that. Praise Him that He's a God who saw our need and wasn't complacent, didn't turn away, but engaged us engaged us on a level that no one else has ever engaged us. That he gave his only son to die in our place for our sin. To pay the penalty that we could not pay. To pay the debt that we owed that we would never be able to pay. Christ did that for you. He did it for me. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would acknowledge their need, that they would acknowledge their sin before a holy God and cry out to Him, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me through the life and death and resurrection of Your Son, the work that He did for me. Change me. Make me the kind of person that would honor and glorify you in every way. We pray that we would also take that message out of these four walls and share it with a world that's lost and dying. 
filled with turmoil and sin. And we have the remedy. We have the answer. If we would only be faithful to share it. And live lives that depict it. The changed life of a Christian. Father, we thank you and we pray that you would just take us through this day. Help us not to forget the words we've heard this morning. Because they came from your word. Your scripture. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.